In August of 2020, one of the highest-ranked exercise science journals, called Sports Medicine, published a commentary titled "Gender-Based Violence Is a Blind Spot for Sports and Exercise Medicine Professionals." The commentary was problematic for a variety of reasons, and this prompted Dr. John Berry of the Center for Male Psychology, Deborah Pawney of the University of Central Lancashire, and me to team up to write a letter to the journal's editor challenging the ideas put forward in the paper. Because our letter is not available open access, I will read it aloud here. However, before reading it, I thought I would share the unusual experience we had in getting the letter. Published. We submitted the first version of our letter to Sports Medicine on September 29th of 2022. I was surprised to see that the editor decided to send our letter out for peer review. The reason that I was surprised is because letters typically do not undergo peer review. Letters are typically no more than 500 words. Thus, standard practice is for a chief editor to make a unilateral decision on whether a letter is appropriate for publication, and this is based on factors such as whether the arguments in the letter are valid and professional, and whether the journal has space to publish a letter in an upcoming issue. I was further surprised because I have previously submitted letters to Sports Medicine, and none of them have undergone peer review. So I asked the editor why he was sending this letter out. For review, his response was that the journal was now instituting a policy that letters will be sent out for review if they are on topics that are quote potentially controversial end quote. What's more, the editor decided to send our letter out to three peer reviewers. Three full-length manuscripts oftentimes are not sent out to three peer reviewers. Clearly, the editor was being cautious with our letter. On gender and violence. On December of 2022, after our letter was under review for approximately two months, we received the reviewers' comments. Their comments were minor, and all three of the reviewers agreed that our letter should be published, assuming their comments were adequately addressed. So we revised our letter accordingly, improving its quality, and we resubmitted the letter on December 15th of 2022. At this stage, given that the reviewer comments were fairly minor, many editors would not have sent the letter out for another round of reviews. Yet, the editor decided to send our revised letter back to the peer reviewers, creating unnecessary delay in the publication process. As expected, the reviewers acknowledged that we had made all of the necessary corrections, and they provided their final stamps of approval for our letter to be published. However, per standard publishing practice with letter exchanges, we had to wait for the researchers who we were challenging to respond to our letter. We expected to have to wait another month or two, but to my surprise, the editor chose to send the researchers' reply out for peer review as well. This was a shocking decision because why would the researchers' opinion of our critiques need to be commented on by peer reviewers? It was one of the dumbest and most unnecessary editorial decisions that I have experienced in my 16 years of publishing research. Yet the oddities of this letter exchange and review process did not end there. Over the course of the subsequent five months, from January of 2023 to May of 
I sent the editor multiple emails inquiring about the status of the researcher's reply and when we might expect the review process to be completed. In March, I was told that the researcher's reply was under review, but delays had been experienced in the process and that the process should be completed in the next couple of weeks. In April, I still had not heard of a final outcome regarding the letter exchange, so I sent an email to the editor explaining, in a professional manner, that I thought the way that the letter exchange was handled was inappropriate and inconsistent with standard editorial practices. I informed the editor of my background as a frequent letter writer and as a researcher who has studied and published on the roles of letter in the scientific process. I argued that a letter is intended to be a short communication that is quickly made available to the journal's readership because doing so would help to slow the transmission of the problematic ideas presented in the original paper. The editor acknowledged my concerns and then informed me that the researcher's reply was going through another final round of revisions. Another month went by and the review process was still incomplete so I once again emailed the editor asking for an update. The response I received was not what I was expecting. The editor informed me that the researchers had decided to remove their reply from consideration for publication. The editor did not tell me why the researchers made this decision. Perhaps, after reading our letter and receiving feedback from reviewers, they realized how wrong they were in their paper. An unfortunate result from all of this is that our letter was completed in December of 2022 and could have been published at that time. Instead, six months have gone by allowing for their misguided ideas to transmit throughout academia without criticism. On the bright side, our letter received positive appraisals from three independent reviewers and the journal has published the letter even though it is on a supposedly, quote, controversial topic, end quote. I will now read the letter. Please note that all of our statements are supported with references to peer-reviewed research papers. Also, if you enjoy our letter and you appreciate academics who are willing to take off the gloves to restore sanity in these confusing times, please consider supporting the Newso letter with a donation. Your support is greatly appreciated as it helps me to continue to work on independent research projects such as this letter. Now to the letter. Dear Editor, Recently, Wheatley and colleagues authored a paper titled Gender-Based Violence is a Blind Spot for Sports and Exercise Medicine Professionals. They began their paper with a one-paragraph discussion about sexual violence in sport and the American Medical Society's position on the topic. They then transitioned to a broader discussion about gender-based violence, including sexual violence and intimate partner violence. Unlike the American Medical Society's gender-neutral discussion on sexual violence in sport, Wheatley and colleagues focused on violence only against women. The word women appears in their paper 13 times, including the list of supporting references. The only time the authors used a male-related word was to refer to, quote, men's socially determined privilege, end quote, which the authors suggested is a cause of violence against women. 
The authors concluded their paper by saying that sports and exercise medicine professionals should receive gender-based violence education to address their blind spots or limited awareness of gender-based violence. Though the authors never provided evidence that sports and exercise medicine professionals have such blind spots or limited awareness. The purpose of our letter is to reveal an important blind spot in Wheatley and colleagues' perspective on gender-based violence, their lack of recognition of male victimization. Decades of research from outside of sports and exercise medicine have shown that men and women are victims of intimate partner violence in heterosexual relationships at roughly equal rates. Dismarius and colleagues reviewed 243 studies on intimate partner violence in heterosexual relationships and discovered, quote, approximately one in four women and one in five men experience physical violence in an intimate relationship, end quote. Fiebert published an annotated bibliography of 270 studies and 73 reviews on intimate partner violence with an aggregate sample of 440,000 individuals and concluded, quote, women are as physically aggressive as men or more in their relationships with their spouses or opposite sex partners, end quote. Archer published a meta-analysis of 82 sources on acts of aggression within heterosexual relationships and concluded, quote, women were significantly more likely than men to have used physical aggression toward their partners and to have used it more frequently, although the effect size was very small, end quote. Whereas, quote, men were more likely than women to have injured their partners, but again, effect sizes were relatively small. End quote. In a second meta-analysis, Archer found that women were more likely than men to, quote, throw something at the other, slap, kick, bite, or punch, and hit with an object, end quote, whereas men were more likely than women to, quote, beat up and to choke or strangle, end quote. Such results show that sex differences exist in rates of specific violent acts and that both women and men can be victims within intimate relationships. Additional findings show why framing gender-based violence as primarily male perpetration and female victimization is problematic. First, women acknowledge their violence toward men. Dismarius and colleagues reviewed 111 articles on intimate partner violence perpetration and found that, quote, more than one in four women and one in five men reported perpetrating physical violence in an intimate heterosexual relationship, end quote. Similarly, in a recent survey about family violence in Australia, 23% of females and 14% of males aged 16 to 20 years reported perpetrating violence against a family member. Second, intimate partner violence exists within lesbian relationships. According to one meta-analysis of 14 studies, rates of current and lifetime victimization of intimate partner violence in lesbian relationships were 15% and 48% respectively. Also, in the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey in the United States of America, 
lifetime prevalence of intimate partner violence was higher among women in lesbian than heterosexual relationships. Thus, Wheatley and colleagues' notion of gender-based violence does not highlight high rates of intimate partner violence victimization among gay and bisexual women brought on by female abusers. Boys and men are also victims of sexual violence, but this was also not discussed by Wheatley and colleagues. In a review of 65 studies covering 22 countries, Pareta and colleagues concluded that 7.9% of men and 19.7% of women have been sexually abused prior to age 18. Stoltenberg and colleagues reviewed 217 studies and found that 76 of every 1,000 males and 180 of every 1,000 females reported being sexually abused as a child. Male victims of abuse also exist within sport. Multiple studies have revealed that self-reported rates of physical, psychological, and sexual abuse in sports environments are similar between male and female athletes. See Table 1. Moreover, given that sports participation is more common among boys and men than girls and women in most countries, the absolute numbers of male and female abuse victims within sports environments should also be considered. In closing, if gender-based violence education is to be delivered to sports and exercise medicine students in the future, then it should be unbiased. It should be evidence-based and include information on rates and types of female and male victimization. Moreover, it should include information about the experiences of negative psychological affect among heterosexual and homosexual male victims, which are similar to those experienced by female victims. For example, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicide ideation. Students should also be introduced to concepts such as gamma bias, the cognitive distortion in which issues that impact boys and men are minimized or never discussed, while issues that impact girls and women are magnified. Findings within the field of experimental psychology support the existence of such a bias. For example, women are more likely than men to be seen as victims. Women receive more empathy than men when both are victims of rape and intimate partner violence. And male victims of intimate partner violence are viewed more negatively than female victims of intimate partner violence. Such findings suggest an empathy gap toward boys and men and might help to explain the lack of explicit attention given to boys and men's issues by national and international organizations.